Well, good morning. So glad to have you with us this morning. And uh, we are going to continue on in a series on the Minor Prophets. So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to give you a few minutes to find the book of Obadiah. And uh, no shame in using the table of contents if you have to. Probably uh, don't spend a lot of time there. But uh, we are in the middle of uh, about an eight-week series walking through the Minor Prophets which uh, are traditionally known as the Book of the Twelve, Twelve Writings um, that contain God's Word, God's prophecies through these, these individuals He's raised up to bring His Word to His people who are in transition, uh, the people of Israel who are <clears throat> kind of either, depending on where you are in the story, either kind of anticipating exile during an exile or returning from exile. And so each week for this uh, series, we're zeroing in on one of these prophets and uh, trying to hear what God's word might be for us today through them as well. And so when we come to Obadiah, how many of you have never heard a sermon on the book of Obadiah? Right? Most of us. I don't know that I ever have either, so this is going to be interesting. But uh, this is the shortest prophet. Uh, It's actually the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. It's only 21 verses long. And, um, and we'll walk through it in a moment, but basically, real quick, just to give you kind of a rundown, um, this is uh, the prophet by the name of Obadiah, and it's a prophecy regarding the nation of Edom. And so the first 16 verses, uh, a little more than half the book, uh, have to do with what God would say to the nation of Edom. And, uh, and it's not pretty, I'll just warn you. And then the last, if you notice at the start of verse 17, there's a but. And so there's a transition there from the bad news to the good news. And so the last few verses from 17 through 21 uh, contains God's promise of hope and restoration for the people of Israel. And so um, we're going to just kind of go chunk by chunk through this, uh, this ancient kind of obscure Hebrew prophet this morning. And it'll be fun. So starting in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of rocks and who make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Okay, and so we'll stop there for now. Some of the minor prophets are written to the people of Israel, God's chosen people, and others are written to other nations around them. The book of Obadiah is written regarding the nation of Edom, like I mentioned. And so, um, a little bit of backstory real quick, if you don't know who the Edomites are. The nation of Israel starts with God calling out this guy by the name of Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham that basically God would say, I will be your God, you will be my people, I'll bless you, I'll make you a great nation. And it's essentially God saying, I'm going to pour myself into you and your family and bless you. And through you, Israel, all nations on earth will be blessed. Okay, so that's the beginning of the story of Israel. God chooses a people 
to be his people, and he will be their God. And the idea is that they would live amongst the nations in a way that would display for the whole world what it looks like to live in right relationship with the God who made you. Okay, so that's, that's how it starts. And Abram takes this blessing, Abraham takes this blessing, he passes it on to his son Isaac. And Isaac passes it on to his son Jacob. And the story goes, God gives Jacob a new name, the name of Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes. Jacob blesses each one of them. And lots of times, you'll hear the writers of the Bible speak about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Over and over again, God's people are reminded that they are part of this much bigger story that they are part of this covenant, that there's always been this deal where God will bless us so that we can be a blessing and all nations will be blessed through us. And that's a blessing, or a covenant that's passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. But here's what's interesting. If you'll remember, Jacob's father Isaac had another son. And he actually had a son who was older Jacob's twin brother. And so anytime you hear this, for us that just kind of sounds like a meaningless uh, lineage, but there's actually kind of something very strange built into it. Jacob had this older son by the name of Esau, who (laughs) the writer of Genesis makes sure that we know that he was born hairy. Okay, First thing we're told about him, hairy and red. And at some point, Esau was deprived of his family's birthright and this blessing, and instead it was all passed on to Jacob. And so Genesis 25 tells that story. Flip over there real quickly with me, if you would, and uh, this will help us understand what's going on in Obadiah a little bit better. Genesis 25, um, we're kind of told the history here. And uh, we'll start in verse 23. This is as God is speaking to Rebekah, um, who's pregnant with these, two, with these two twins. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Okay, so you move on a little bit further in the story. And you see how this word from God actually begins to play out. And it's a very familiar story for most of us that have been around the Bible for any length of time. Um, The the biblical writers tell us that Esau, who again is this very hairy man, goes on a hunting trip, uh, comes back empty-handed, and when he gets home, he hasn't eaten all day and he's starving. And so Jacob, his little brother, who's just finished cooking this pot of delicious red stew, Esau goes to him and asks for a bowl of soup. And Jacob seizes this as an opportunity to gain the family's birthright. And so he proposes a deal. He goes, Esau, I will give you some of my stew if you give me the birthright. And apparently Esau is so hungry that he agrees and he eats this red stew and he gets, he gets the inheritance. Okay, so in verse 20 or verse 30, we're told, here's, here's how it goes down. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that's why he was also called Edom. Edom means red. Okay? So it's a funny story. Uh, from this point on, Esau is essentially the village idiot. 
right? Like his passion for red soup has now become his identity among the, the, the community. So it's like everywhere he went, it's like, hey, eat him. Want some soup? Hey, Red, you hungry? Right? Like they never let him live it down. It becomes his name. And so from that time on, Esau, also known as Edom, becomes the father of the nation of Edom or the people known as the Edomites. And it's essentially this kind of constant reminder that it was supposed to be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, but our stupid, hairy, red grandpa, like, couldn't hold it together enough, right? So, um, so they miss out on this, on this incredible blessing. And then if you go in Genesis 27, we won't read it, but the next story, which is also pretty well known, is Jacob fi- also finds a way to trick Esau into giving him the father's blessing. Right? So, uh, again, the father's old at this point. Isaac can't see well. And uh, he wants to pass on the family blessing to his oldest son. And uh, Jacob sneaks in, covers himself with goat skin so that he feels like Esau, just to give you an idea of how hairy he is. And his father, who's blind, touches his hairy goat arms and goes, oh, you're Esau. And he gives him this family blessing. And so from that point on, these two brothers, they're not cool, right? Like things aren't going well. And so Esau decides he's going to kill Jacob. Jacob finds out. He runs away. And it's never really resolved. So eventually both sons have these families become fathers fathers of great nations, and Jacob's descendants become Israel, and Esau's are the Edomites. And so the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau, and that's who the book of Obadiah is written about. So I've got a map real quick just to show you where they are uh, geographically. You'll see the, the kingdom of Israel, kingdom of Judah, uh, a divided kingdom at this point up in the north, and then the big yellow kingdom of Edom down south. And so it's a plot of land in the mountains just south of the Dead Sea overlooking Israel, and it's essentially where modern-day Jordan is now. The capital of Edom, if you can read that down at the bottom, is a city known as Petra. Okay? And so in this, uh, in Obadiah, we're this, this place of rocks, this city of rocks, is mentioned several times. Uh, if you grew up in the 80s listening to Christian butt rock, you know what Petra means. Petra means rock, right? And so uh, the, the city of Petra was actually uncovered in the 1800s. Um, this Swiss expl- it's a funny story if you read about it. He, uh, he pretends that he's on this spiritual pilgrimage and wants to make sacrifices to God. Um, so he actually brings a goat that he's going to kill. They let him in, and he goes and he discovers the city of Petra. And um, incredible place that's literally a city that's carved into the rocks. The next slide has this kind of famous picturesque temple uh, at Petra. And uh, this is, if you remember, where Indiana Jones found the Holy Grail in the Last Crusade. Actually, it didn't turn out to be his last crusade, which is kind of a bummer because <laughs> it didn't go so well. But um, <laughs> So this is now considered one of the new seven wonders of the world. Like, if you ever have a chance to go to the city of Petra, it's one of the places you want to hit. This is, this is where the Edomites lived. This is their capital city, and this is their national identity, that this symbol of a, a city carved out of the rock. It was a symbol of security, a symbol of you can't mess with us. We will not be brought down from this point. And so they had an incredible amount of national pride in their defense systems and also in their political allies. And God is coming 
after the Edomites in the book of Obadiah. And in verse 3, or verse 2, he says, See, I'll make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of rocks and who make your home in the heights. And so God's charge against the Edomites is that they have been deceived by the pride of their hearts. And he says that they have built an entire identity and an entire way of living and being together around this mentality that we are at the top of the world and we are untouchable. And in a military sense, this was quite true. The way that Petra was lined up, it would literally just take a handful of Edomite soldiers to fend off thousands of invading soldiers. You had to go through these tiny little narrow rockways. And so they had built this whole world, this whole life, this whole community around the idea that we are untouchable. Essentially, that we are the gods of the universe. And so, Obadiah is essentially reads like a, a legal case that's being presented against the Edomites. And Obadiah functions kind of as this prosecutor who's reminding everybody of God's covenant with his people and God's mission in the world and reading off the, the, the things Edom has done that are in violation of that. But he sums it all up with that phrase in verse 3, that the pride of your heart has deceived you. And then he goes on to tell them that because of your pride, I'm going to wipe you out. You think nobody can touch you. You think nobody can bring you down. And God says, yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to make the end of you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Now, as we've gone through the prophets, we've seen God's, God's anger um, in several ways. And usually it's been directed towards people who we kind of, once we get the story, we understand, oh yeah, they really deserve to be wiped out, right? Like you have the, the Assyrians who invent genocide. And we're going, yeah, that's probably okay if God judges them, right? And you have uh, the Ninevites who are skinning people alive and all that kind of stuff. And so we're like, yeah, these wicked, cruel, bloodthirsty nations, we want a God of justice who's going to make things right. But when we get to Edom, his charge is, you guys are too proud. And we're kind of going, man, that doesn't seem that bad. Like that kind of seems like an overreaction if that's the thing that God's got against them, right? Like, we kind of don't think of pride as being that big of a deal. Like, it doesn't sound ridiculous to, for us to say, oh, yeah, he's a good guy, but he's just kind of proud. Like, that's not crazy. As compared to, like, if we said, yeah, he's a good guy, he's just a little bit of a murderer, right? You're like, oh, I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> that doesn't work. But apparently, what God is seeing here is that the pride of their heart is a really big deal. And it's something that God takes incredibly seriously and is going to deal with quite thoroughly. Okay, And so, thankfully, he unpacks this a little bit more for us. In verses 10 through 13, there's three specific outworkings of Edom's pride. I know this is a little Bible college lectury at the moment, but just stay with me for a moment. Three outworkings of Edom's pride. The first, in verse 10, is because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be destroyed forever. 
So God says, the pride of your heart's deceived you. Here's how it's showing up. The first, a life of violence against your brother. Number two, in 11, on the day you stood aloof while strangers carried out his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. So first, you're a violent people because of your pride. And secondly, you've watched, stood by passively while your brother is being robbed and emptied and done nothing about it because of your pride. And number three in verse 12, you should not gloat over your brother in the days of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in their day of disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. So thirdly, God's saying, because of your pride, not only you're violent, not only have you been apathetic and passive instead of intervening and protecting your brother, but you have actually gloated in, over his misfortune. You've actually stood by and rejoiced while his world is, is collapsing. And now we start to go, oh, so pride is a big deal. Right? It's not just kind of this kind of too cool arrogant kind of attitude. He's saying there's something really deep that's happening here within Edom and it's leading to all kinds of the worst sorts of human behavior and human identity. Violence, injustice, greed. These are all the offspring of pride. And so what God's doing is chasing down the root issue the sins beneath their sins, if you will. Not just their violence and injustice and greed, but the thing at the core level of their heart and of their nation that causes them to basically commit, the best word for it is, the sin of unbrotherliness. Rather than being their brother's keeper, they became those that rejoiced over their brother's destruction. And God brings it all back to this one thing in verse 3, that the pride of your heart has deceived you. And maybe already, as we're kind of reading through this, you're starting to realize this isn't just a story about Edom, is it? This is a story about everybody. And if you're thinking that, you'd be correct. There's an interesting wordplay going on here in the book of Obadiah. The Hebrew letters that spell the word Edom are essentially the same Hebrew letters that spell the word Adam. And if you see the word Adam, that looks like the name of a guy we know, right? The name Adam, Adam, is humanity. And so what God is speaking to the nation of Edom is essentially a picture of what God would say to all humanity. It's a story that goes all the way back to the beginning of human history. If Edom's problem is the pride of their heart, then it's easy to see how that's the problem with humanity as well. From the story of, of Adam and Eve, first choosing not to trust God and not to live a God-centered life, but instead to live a self-centered life. To choose for themselves the knowledge of good and evil instead of trusting and obeying what God had declared to be good and evil. The pride of your heart has deceived you. This has always been 
humanity's issue. Now, we may not live in literal rocks like the city of Petra, but the truth is we all have these places in our, in our hearts and in our lives, and we could be speaking at a national level or as a church or simply as individuals, saying there are things that we would be prone to trust in over trusting the faithfulness of our God. And here's what's interesting. When God talks about pride here, he talks about it as the product of deceit. So he goes, the way you end up sinfully proud is by believing a lie instead of believing the truth. It's an interesting thing to think about because in Bend, for example, we've talked about this a little bit before, this is a city that uh, is really marked by an individualistic way of living and being. That we have the tendency, we would never come out and say this, but we have the tendency to live as as if the world revolves around us. So, none of you moved to Bend for what you could do for Bend, did you? You moved here for what Bend could do for you. Which doesn't seem like a big deal, and I'm not saying it's, it's a terrible thing, but the problem is, it's literally acting as if the city of Bend exists for me, so that I can have the lifestyle of leisure and recreation and fun and cool and all that, All of this is for me, so I'm going to go there for my own individual thriving and good times, right? It's just kind of tip of the iceberg. And what God is saying is when you live, when you believe that the world revolves around you, when you live as if the world revolved around you, he's going, you've bought into a lie. And that lie has to do with the pride of your heart. So here's, here's what I'm saying, if, if it's not clear. When we live as if the world doesn't revolve around us, that's not just like a more humble way to live. That's actually true. <laughs> right? <laughs> it doesn't revolve around you. So to be deceived by the pride of your heart is to believe and live as if it does. Right? Pretty simple. If it's not clear yet, the very last verse of Obadiah is the kingdom will be the Lord's. The earth and everything in it belongs to God. He created it. He's redeeming it. One day, the new heavens, the new earth will come. He's going to restore all things back to himself. This is God's world. And it was designed to be a God-centered world. We were created to live God-centered lives. The kingdom is the Lord's. It's not yours. And it's not ours. It's not Ben's. And it doesn't belong to the United States. It is God's. And so he's not just simply calling us to try hard harder to be a little bit more humble? If deceit leads to pride, then what leads to humility? What's the opposite of deceit? Truth. Wake up. 
It is not about you. Even your very life is not about you. It's all God's. It's for him and from him and by him and through him. Every day that you have. And like the Edomites, we can quickly take pride in the self-made success that we, we would use to justify why we can look down on those around us, those who are different than us, those who haven't achieved what we have or those who don't have what we have, whatever it is. We all find these things these stories that we tell ourselves why we can look down on those around us. And God's coming out not just against the Edomites, but against all humanity and saying, it's just not true. <laughs> you're not self-made anything. You didn't choose where you're going to be born. You didn't choose when you were going to be born. You didn't choose what natural or physical gifts or abilities you were going to be born into the world with. God says, everything you have is from me. And if you deny that and live a self-centered, prideful life, it's just not a true, authentic way to live. And so the truth leads us to humility. Right? And by contrast to a people of pride, all throughout Scripture, God would call his people to be a humble people. A people who are living in tune with the way things actually are. A people who aren't pursuing their own kingdom, their own name, their own glory, but rather are pursuing God's kingdom, name, and glory. Because it's his anyways. And so one of the lessons that I've learned along the way is that God's really serious about this. God deeply opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And one of the ways that he gives grace is by being faithful to keep his people humble. Have you noticed that? That God is faithful to keep his people humble? Like God loves us so much that he won't let us slip into pride for the long haul. But he will graciously intervene in the course of our lives to remind us that we are his and that all is his. And so a few years ago, I was sitting at this uh, Bible study. It was in a home in a basement with a bunch of college students. And I was sitting on this kind of desk in the back of the room and 50, 60 other students are in the room. And the guy who's up there giving the Bible study is just butchering it. It's like the worst thing that I've ever heard. He has no idea what he's talking about. And I'm sitting there as a young pastor going, oh my gosh, this guy's terrible. What's he doing up there? I should be up there. Man, if I was up there, right? As I'm thinking this and then just kind of resolve, man, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm sitting on this desk. I lean back and I crack into this huge, expensive, original oil painting that falls off the wall, crashes, the frame breaks apart, and everybody stops and turns around and looks at me. And this terrible Bible teacher up in the front's like, are you okay, man? Right? And um, it was a humiliating moment for me. No, of course, nobody in the room knew what was going on in my head and heart in, the mo- in that time. But I looked back later and realized, oh, yeah, God's faithful to keep his people humble. <laughs> 
isn't he? <laughs> right? Now, I, I preached the book of Obadiah one other time. It was close to 10 years ago in Corvallis. And um, I was, uh, you don't get a lot of info on Obadiah. So earlier this week, I went back and listened to the podcast. I was like, I wonder what he even said. It was probably all terrible, but I wonder what I said. So I'm listening to the podcast, and you hear me as like this 25-year-old fireball talking really high and fast and like getting after my church for their pride, right? And just laying into them, railing into them. And then if you listen to the podcast, all of a sudden you hear this huge crash boom and guitar strings kind of reverberating throughout the auditorium. And I had, I had totally forgotten about this, but I'm listening to the podcast and trip over the dude's guitar that's sitting on the stage behind me in the middle at this point right now. So I'm sitting here today, you guys, just to be honest, like terrified <laughs> of what's going to happen, especially because a, <laughs> a few of us went to a pastor's conference this week, and it was probably the closest thing I've ever seen to a pastor getting booed off the stage. And I'm going, oh, this is just this is a recipe for disaster uh, for me to stand up and, and speak on pride today. But um, in that... And maybe you've had similar stories related to whatever. When you start thinking too highly of yourself, that God kind of creatively, gently finds a way to keep you humble. So here's what I would say. It's going to go well for you if you learn to embrace that which keeps you humble. Which is very counter to everything within us and within our culture. Right? A culture that says, flaunt it if you've got it, right? And make a name for yourself and live the life you want or whatever it is. God will faithfully keep us humble and we would do well to embrace that. Whatever that is for you, what is the thing? What are, what are the ways or the places in your life that keeps you from thinking that the world revolves around you? Chances are those are kind of your nemesis, your Achilles heel. And God's message would be, embrace those things. They're grace. So, we're running out of time here. So, we know from Scripture, from Obadiah and many other places, that God uh, opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you. I don't want to live a life that's opposed by God. I want my life to be graced by God, blessed by God. I want that for my family, for our church, for our city. And so, just real quickly in terms of uh, some, some application to close, what would it look like for us to take these warnings seriously and to not follow in the pride of Edom but to truly pursue Jesus and allow him to form us into a humble people, a people who inhabit this changing world with a posture of grace and humility. I'll just give you three uh, quick points. The first is confess your sins. Get into the habit on a regular basis of examining your own life, examining your heart, examining your thoughts and allowing God to show you what he sees. And then to be as specific as possible 
in confessing not only your sins, but also the sin beneath the sins, which God does here for the Edomites. Not just the outworking or the symptoms of your sinfulness, but down at the core, what's really going on? What are you really looking to for what only God can be for you? As Protestants, we kind of don't have this formal act of confession, right? And in some ways, it's a tragedy because we need this. We need space. We need time and place in a community where we can confess our sins before God and one another, that we can live whole and healed. Secondly, is spend time in God's creation, take in creation. The Psalms are full of voices like Psalm 8 saying, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that you're mindful of him? Right? Do you see what's happening? The psalmist is sitting under this probably big, beautiful sky full of stars and all this stuff. And he sees the glory of God and he's reminded, I didn't make any of this. I couldn't create a world like this. Only God can. Only God has. And he says, what is man that you're mindful of? By taking in the beauty and majesty of creation, we find our place within that creation. Under the lordship of the one God who made it all and who's redeeming it all. Right? Like it's easy to get prideful over some of our accomplishments. Right? I built this great business. I made a bunch of money. I have an amazing family. I've got a great Christian life, right? Like, I can do a lot. Actually, I'm pretty good. I'm actually amazing. Everybody else should be more like me. They should be looking to me. And you get in creation, you go, oh yeah, I can't do that. So don't just use creation. Listen to it for God's voice. And finally, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, who becomes a servant of all. So the famous line is that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? And Jesus is our ultimate example of this, who in very nature is God, but doesn't spend his life on earth trying to get other people to serve him. Instead, he becomes a servant. He gives his life away. He humbles himself to the lowest to the lowest place in humanity. And in so doing, he doesn't just give us an inspirational role model of a humble guy, he's doing something much bigger than that. Jesus displays for us that we actually have a humble God. Jesus is what God is like. When we look at a Jesus who's not grasping for power, not manipulating others, not forcing his will or way upon, upon those around him, but instead enters into the world as the least of these, wraps a towel around his waist, washes his disciples' dirty feet. He's saying, this is what God's like. The great, crazy paradox of the story of God. We have a humble king. So that truth would lead us to what? To be a a humble people. Do not be deceived by the pride of your hearts, but follow the humble king and let his grace inform and transform every part of your life.
whatever power, whatever success, whatever possessions you have, rather than hiding behind them and living a self-centered life. Jesus models for us taking all that he is and emptying himself for the healing of the world, for the flourishing of humanity. And ultimately, this isn't just how Jesus lived, is it? Ultimately, this is how Jesus died. As he's raised up on the cross, God is lowering himself down so that we who are low could become great. That we could become the sons and daughters of God who bear his image, live on his mission of restoring all things to himself and modeling for the nations what a God-centered life would actually look like. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this old, obscure, prophetic book because in it we truly do hear your word for us today. And I would pray, Lord Jesus, would you give us, well, would, you, would, you, would you continue this good work you've started in us of helping us to see things as you do, to see ourselves as we really are and to see you as you really are and to see this world for what it is. People and places loved by you whom you desire to call to yourself. And so each of us have kingdoms of our own that we would rather build if we're honest. But you have invited us, graciously invited us to join you in, in seeking your kingdom and pronouncing it and displaying it to the world around us. And so we pray that that restoration, that reconciliation that you're desiring to do in the world and are doing, we pray that it would start here with us today. Do not let us be deceived by the pride of our hearts, but let us be humbled by your truth. And may we find you, your presence, and your power in the journey as we embrace every day and everything as gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.